0: Dr. Michael O'Sullivan, you are the head of SPIRE, that's the Spirituality Institute for Research and Education in Ireland. You're the director of that and you've also worked in Latin America, very interested in social justice and written in those areas as well. We're now looking at a a situation where we have a Pope from Latin America and now we have a, a leader of the Jesuits from Latin America, from Venezuela. The first time ever that a non-European has been elected as leader of the Jesuits there is a context to this happening it just hasn't come out of nowhere can you situate that context for us?
1: Sure yes that's a very important point I think that sometimes we think of leadership as being really just about the person's qualities and capabilities and so forth and of course they do come into it but we also have to be aware that there's always a context to a person becoming a leader at a particular time and the uh, historical context behind if you like the emergence of Arturo Sosa as the new Jesuit world leader uh, is the the context of course of Latin America and I would say if we go back to 1955 that was when the La- Conference of Latin American Bishops was founded and they did an analysis of their, con- their continent at the time and they realised there was a great deal of poverty and all that but then the Second Vatican Council, 62, 65 and 65, the Church of the Modern World, the bishops gathered there, said that um, Christian identity really had to be uh, understood in terms of solidarity with the world of our time, especially those who are poor. And when I think the,
0: that's important, isn't it? I mean, just listening to you there, a lot of people maybe hone in on liberation theology, which came much later, but we're talking about 1955, that these bishops were coming yes, together.
1: Yes, they, they, they were coming together to analyse their situation and realising that this where a lot of life was lived in terms of in, in, in a situation of poverty of so many people, and it was a very Christian country, very Christian continent, and therefore they felt that you can't serve the Christian community of the continent without taking account of the reality of their lives, which was massive poverty. But the Second Vatican Council then I think helped things along in this direction when it said that the uh, joys and hopes, the griefs, and anxieties of the people of our time, especially those who are poor, are the joys and hopes, the griefs, and anxieties of the uh, followers of Christ, so that they were saying really that Christian identity in our time involved solidarity with people and especially those who are poor so when the uh, Latin American bishops went home from the council and gathered then at Medellin which was the follow on from Rio de Janeiro which I spoke about just there now but uh, the Medellin conference was the follow on then 13 years later in between you had the Second Vatican Council and when they asked themselves what does it mean to be in solidarity with the people of our time as Christians at this time in our history and they said well we certainly cannot be uh, authentic Christians in our time at this conference unless we effectively make, they didn't name it exactly in this way, but unless we effectively make a preferential option for the poor. So that whole impetus around authentic Christian faith requiring this kind of commitment to uh, addressing the reality of poverty in the lives of the people of the continent really came forward. The Jesuits then, of course, in 1974-75 came together and they decided that the mission of the Jesuits into the future should be a faith that does justice. And it's recognised that the Latin American um, Jesuits had a big influence on that emergence, on that development at the time. And so you have you have things moving on. You've also got Catholic social teaching coming along with sixty one and sixty three. The first time in the history of the Catholic Church that you get two papal social encyclicals in three years. I mean, the first one had been eighteen ninety one. The second one wasn't done until nineteen thirty one. The third one was nineteen sixty one, so the gap is shortening. The fourth one is nineteen sixty three, mm-hmm. and then you have Paul the sixth coming on nineteen sixty seven, and on it goes. So it was a whole movement in this direction of a concern for social justice from a faith-based perspective and commitment uh, developing. And the present Pope has come from Latin America and now the new leader of the Jesuits worldwide has come from Latin America. And I think that, you know, all that context that was coming along, particularly in Latin America, but even too with Vatican II, has very much influenced the emergence of, of such people as the leader, both Pope and leader of the Jesuits in the world.
0: In the middle of that, in that time span, you had some very significant things and you had Oscar. Romero you'd held her Camara and you had a number of Jesuits losing their lives we think of the six Jesuits in El Salvador plus their their housekeeper and her daughter so there were people who were really Mm. suffering Mm. under very Mm. brutal regimes Mm. who were trying to work on behalf of the poor Mm. and it was certainly a martyrdom.
1: Absolutely. I would say from my time living and working in Latin America it was very evident just what a strong commitment the Jesuits of the continent have towards this kind of way of being Jesuits and uh, serving the faith at this time in, in in the history and of course some Jesuits took it very very seriously and got martyred Luis Espinal in Bolivia people coming home from his funeral heard that Archbishop Oscar Romero had just been assassinated in El Salvador you had Rutilio Grande in El Salvador murdered in 1977 and the influence of his death on Romero was everybody knows that and then of course you had uh, the Jesuits in 1989 El Salvador murdered six of them dragged out of their beds and shot and uh, their housekeeper and daughter were shot because on the way out somebody heard some noise and they checked it out and found that the woman and mother, mother and her daughter were huddled up in a corner in a room and they just blasted their brains into the ceiling and when I was in El Salvador they couldn't get the blood out of the ceiling because of the dumb, dumb bullets that were used and the brains came out of the Jesuits' heads because they were shot with dumb, dumb bullets, high-velocity bullets and this was kind of a ritual that's signifying that the brains of the Jesuits were considered to be a danger to national security. Because they
0: were writing, of course, about social justice and teaching in the university. Yes,
1: they were running the Jesuit university and it was very strongly directed in that direction and, of course, the context of El Salvador at the time where there was so much poverty in persecution. You couldn't be authentically Christian and live the mission of the Jesuits that had been brought in seventy four seventy five. 74, 75, do it authentically, unless you really took up the realities of people's lives from a faith-based perspective and commitment and even went to the ultimate consequences with it. And in doing that, it's interesting to recall that the Latin American bishops that made a gene in 1968 said at the time that uh, Latin American church will live out its vocation, vocation to liberation, at the cost of whatever consequences. And that's the way it turned out to be. So many martyrs following uh, after that. But they saw this, the commitment to the liberation of the poor from their poverty and from their persecution that went with it. They saw this as a vocation. The struggle for liberation was intimately linked to the progress of salvation in history. And that they said they were reading the signs of the times, which is a big emphasis in Vatican II as well that was taken up. That in reading the signs of the times, they had sought to discern a plan of God at work uh, in history at this time. And they said that the cry of the poor was the. Was a cry to God as a real sign of the times it had to be heard and heeded and responded to and that they were going to see this as their vocation then
0: Now within the institutional church itself which had its own issues with liberation theology in the past and we think of Cardinal Ratzinger who became Pope Benedict and the instruction he issued on some aspects of liberation theology when he was in charge of the Congregation for the Doctrine and Faith but now we have a Latin American Pope and leader of the Jesuits who are very much in that tradition of solidarity with the poor and of challenging society today to look at how we treat the poor and how society and the, really the global world is structured in terms of those who are left on the margins and who are less well off.
1: Oh absolutely. I mean most of the known world is living in dire poverty really. How do you be an authentic Christian who if you say that God is a God of love who, you know, the incarnations about God showing that love by coming into history to be on the side of people, to be of assistance to them in their daily lives. And then you find that their daily lives involve such struggles to do with poverty and and oppression and all that. And uh, you seek to sort of be a witness to this kind of God in this kind of time in history. Most of the known world is economically poor and you're not somehow engaged with the lives of people in those conditions. I mean, you can't call yourself an authentic Christian church. So there is a great onus, really, for the sake even to of just integrity of who we are and what we're meant to be to take this on in whatever way we can. Now, it's terribly challenging, terribly demanding, but uh, we have to try. And I was very struck that um, when the congregation opened, the um, head of the Dominicans was asked to give the homily, and he said, you know, that we're called, in his view, to be open to, in faith to be open to the improbable and to doing what seems not really... Probable, but the um, first homily of the current leader of the Jesuits in the world said we not only have to be open to the improbable and to have the courage to face into the improbable but we have to have the courage to be open and face into the impossible because he said all things are possible to God so from the faith perspective you face everything and the Call to deal with the world's poor and so many of them there and the, all the atrocities that are happening and uh, the terrible suffering that's in the world at the moment. It does seem impossible as to how we're going to, to, to address this and sort it out and, 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 and transform it and make it better. But that is precisely the call of faith to believe that the impossible is possible if you go at it with God in your heart and mind. When the Jesuits gathered in Rome as well to choose a new leader, they would have, of course been very aware that the current Pope is from Latin America and the Jesuits have a special vow, you know, to um, be of assistance and do what they can for the missions that the Pope would be concerned about. And so they would be reading the Pope's mind and heart. What is he concerned about? And what would he be hoping for from the Jesuits? And uh, I think this would have happened all the more uh, in this case because of the Pope himself being a Jesuit. I just think it would have made the Jesuits even more uh, attentive, if you like, to the present Pope's concerns. And uh, he's coming from Latin America. And he has some of the same concerns that the present Pope has, a concern about the poor of the world, a concern for social justice, a concern that this, of course, be grounded in faith faith. And uh, he is a man who has worked very much in higher education. He had uh, to found a new university and has also worked in university circles. And but he's also somebody who was running a, re, a social research center. And he was somebody who was involved with on the ground, the Fe Alegria schools, which are schools in southern Bolivia, which are dealing with the, some of the poorest people possible. So he, although on the one hand, he's, if you like, somebody in higher education, he's also somebody in social research and he's somebody with a great concern for underground needs of people, such as those people going to those schools of Fe Alegria, and all these concerns, of course, are very close to the Pope. And the other thing I'd say strongly here now is that the you know it's interesting that um, in the last you know appointment of cardinals, that, well, they haven't been actually appointed yet, but the naming of the cardinals that the Pope has just done, uh, they include a new cardinal from Venezuela which, of course, is where Arturo Sosa, the new leader of the Jesuits, is coming from. But it is interesting that the Pope chose a new cardinal from Venezuela. There is already one there, but the one who's there came out very critical of the Pope. uh, And so, if you like, the Pope has decided there's a need for another kind of voice at that level in the Church in Venezuela. And the present Secretary of State of the Vatican, Cardinal Parolin, It was the Nuncio in Venezuela from 2009 to 2013. That's there for just the years immediately before he was called to Rome by the present Pope. So there's a big Venezuelan
0: influence there. And just for people who are listening to this, there is that sense of the overwhelming nature of the injustice and poverty today and and war. We think of Syria. We think of Aleppo, a town that is being wiped out as we sit here. We think of the you know unending trail of refugees it seems so huge where does somebody sitting listening to this with a good heart a good christian with a good heart where do we start
1: well i think too we we have to be careful that we don't expect people to do what's not going to be helpful either for them or for anyone else so the thing we have to do i think is for each person and each group and each organization and whatever to trying and look honestly at what it can do taking account of its circumstances uh, and then being realistic about what perhaps it can contribute because everything will help. And just because we may not be able to do something enormous to make a difference doesn't mean that we shouldn't do what we can because everything makes a difference.
0: As we finish off today looking just at at the election of your own Father General and of the the Pope, are you hopeful? Do you think this is a good message in terms of the Church for the kind of leadership and way forward that we're looking to?
1: I do. I would be very hopeful in some ways there was never a better time to be a christian that may seem strange but i think that there's a there's you know, the present Pope, the kind of openness that he's displaying and the uh, encouragement and hope and hope it's giving to people and the sense then for other people too, that you know what, uh, maybe we can work with Christians as well, that they're not so hard and fast as to kind of make us feel unwelcome and excluded and whatever. And the uh, new leader of the Jesuits has said that, you know, we have to be into, if you like, into collaboration and not only with people within the Christian community, but with people also outside it. We have to work with everybody and there is good everywhere. The Second Vatican Council uh, and the papal social encyclicals of John XXIII uh, spoke about addressing a message to to all people of goodwill and there is great goodwill and on Saturday just gone by I was at uh, a day with Sheikh Al-Qadri who is a Muslim iman here in Dublin and you know, I just found him so so, so good to listen to. He was such a great voice of reason and sanity. And there is a whole way to see the Muslim faith that we can really work with. So I am very hopeful there is movement going on in, in all directions. And if we can see
0: the good in each other and come together and do what's possible, then we will actually do what seems impossible.